welcome to the Agile BI podcast, where we chat with guests or sometimes just to ourselves about being agile with teams who are delivering data, analytics, and visualizations. Welcome to the Agile BI podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. I'm Blair Tempero. And I'm Nikki McKenzie. Hey Nikki, welcome and thank you for joining Blair and myself to, to have a little chat. Um, I think today we're going to start off talking about um, the definition of the Kanban board, you know, why, why we typically start off with uh, to do, doing, done, 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 um, and see where we go from there. But before we do that, what we typically do is, is get somebody that's joining us to give a little bit of background about where you've come from, how you joined this world of Agile for data and analytics, and, and kind of give us a little bit of back history uh, on yourself. Okay, well, I'm going to start back when I'm... Um Back at university, I studied operations research, um, and that's about using maths to solve optimization problems. And we learned about things, um, things like just-in-time manufacturing, Kanban, um, TQM, total quality management, and things like queuing theory. And it's really good to see that uh, now these kind of techniques are being used and wider, applied wider than just manufacturing. Yeah. So I started off. My first job was uh, as a uh, in customer service, using uh, I was uh, providing information requests, and after that I I was a marketing analyst doing direct mail campaigns, providing the data for that. And I did my OE in London, and I worked for a small data analytics consultancy, and that's where I um, got into data warehousing. And uh, I've been an ETL developer for years, and and now I'm leading a team of developers with an agile mindset. Cool, yeah. I mean, for me. Um I suppose when I'm coaching teams, uh, I know we should be doing burn down charts. We should be understanding obviously the team using data. Yeah, we should be data driven. Um, but it's one that I've always struggled with a little bit. I know Blair. I mean, we stole stole your your, your burn down chart uh, magic spreadsheet the other day for a, for a customer. That's okay. With. Um, but Blair's obviously well, not obviously. Blair's been a lot stronger and as the scrum master and managing that. Um, and for me, yeah, one of the things I always start off with is working with a team, or well, not always, I've started starting off with, is explaining to the squads and the teams that I'm working with the choices between you know, uh, an iterative approach like Scrum and, and what it does and, and the way it gives us uh, unnatural constraints, but that helps us, versus a flow-based um, approach like Kanban or Lean. Um, and you know how that works and and when I look at the boards if we take a flow based or even if we take a scrum based approach um, you know starting off with to do doing done 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 um, kind of forces the the teams to break their behaviors um, when I start off with you know requirements you know more of a, a pipeline or, or an SDC approach um, even those the things we do, as soon as they're on the board, we, we get into natural waterfall behaviour with handoffs, right? Uh, oh, that's the requirements bucket, I'm the BA, um, you know, oh no, I'm an ETL developer, I can't do that. Even though they have the T-skills. Um, so I've always kind of started off with, with that to-do, doing, done, 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 um, because it forces a team to start behaving differently. But for your point of view, how are you finding it? Well, I've, when I've worked with cross-functional teams where they've been uh, analysts, testers and developers, uh, I found that the, the testers pretty much just want to do testing. 
Yeah, we've found that as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually had to go and talk to the test manager to say, um, will you let your testers do some analysis? And I got, I got agreement. And, and then they started doing analysis. And, and they're really good. Testers are really good at analysis. Yeah, it's a great, they, they have that T-skill naturally, typically, right? A, yeah, tester, so, a tester yeah. is typically good at analysing something. I, I suppose my theory is because they've got to analyse what the requirements and, and the developers were doing to figure out what to test that has value, and, and they've always done that naturally. Yeah. Do yeah. Do you think though that one of the problems is you had to talk to a test manager, right? So if we talk yeah. about agile and agile mindset, agile ways of working, they should be a self-contained team, right? They should be in charge of their own destiny and the way they work. As soon as they, you have to go and ask a manager whether a member on that team can do a task, we've kind of broken it, right? We're, we're, we're trying to develop in an agile way, but actually our organisation, our business agility is hierarchical. Yeah, that and that's, that's a, it's like a pocket of, of doing agile, and um, you've kind of got to try and fit it in with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a, a waterfall um, project that mm -hmm. we were doing this for, and, and there was a deadline, um, so we had to work in with that deadline. Right. Uh, but you know, we still we still had um, we still had a we had weekly um, planning sessions mm -hmm. that I found worked really well, and um, because there were so many things that were changing, we had the environment, you know, the testing environment, yep. um, development environment. That was all it was all changing underneath us, and we never knew when we were going to get it, and so um, it was really difficult for us to plan any further than a week. Um, and we also had our testers being moved off. Um, onto another project from time to time. We were sort of um, they were a shared resource, so that was um, that was interesting because we never really knew if they were going to be pulled away from us. So, I, so, so I go through my chest, <laughs> my checklist of things that worry me. So uh, first one I heard, on yeah, yeah, here we go, here we go. So uh, I heard um, there was another project which had a deadline, which no doubt was uh, uh, never never scoped in terms of it being achievable, but you had to meet that. Um, the things or the tools you relied on in terms of the platform and the, and the environments were outside your, um, so you couldn't, you know, deliver them earlier or later. You were reliant on somebody else to give them to you when they could. Um, the team that you had weren't dedicated, uh, and not dedicated. Often, what we find is they're dedicated, but they have to do BAU. Right, so there's BAU bleed. That that happens often. Oh no, we didn't have that. It was no, another project. But you got even yeah. worse, which yeah. is actually the resource <laughs> will be removed from the team or the squad um, in the middle of doing that work. Um, and and I think the last one was what you had to deliver changed, or did I? No, no, no. no okay, so you you kind of knew what you had to deliver. That was the, yeah. that was a given. All right. Well, that's, 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 so was that other project uh, waterfall, or was it another another kanban type approach? It was waterfall. Right. Yeah. And, and were you engaged early in that waterfall process or right near the end? Well, it was going on at the same time. Were you and your team engaged at the beginning of the waterfall journey or oh, right was, near the end? It was right at the end. Right yeah. at the end, just before they are about to go live. Yeah. Right. Cool. So what did you do? <laughs> so, so, so you moved to uh, you moved to a weekly planning yeah. iteration, yeah. right, um, to help manage that change yeah. and bring that flexibility. That's cool. Um, it sounded like you, you you were using a flow or Kanban based board. We had a Kanban board, and we started off doing to do doing done. Right. Yep. And so we we put that on the board. It was before we had any. Um, we didn't have. Um, we only had. We didn't have an electronic board. It was right. all a yep. all a manual. Yep. Um, Stick it notes board. Did you um, manage work in progress? So for each of those those buckets or glasses of water, I call them, 
How many, how many people were in the team uh, did, that you had uh, in the development team? We well, had two developers and two testers. Okay, so there were four in the squad, effectively. Yeah. Um, did you limit each one of those buckets to four tasks or one task, or as many, like how did you manage the work in progress limit for each of those on the? Well, we didn't have a hard limit, but but it was when we had our weekly planning session, we we worked out how much we thought we could do in a week. Uh, we had a pretty good feel for that, and uh, and we just kind of had a guess. Okay. And. And just made sure there weren't too many things up there. So it was two or three tasks. Right. And you just kept yeah. an eye to say, did yeah. it feel right? Yeah. In, in terms of that. And then um, I'm amazed how many ops research or uh, or science people get into data. It's a really, I don't know why, it's, it's weird. Eh? Lots of, uh, uh, we had Kat Greenbrook on a while ago doing data storytelling and she actually came out as a, uh, she did a science degree and was in a lab. Um, and decided she didn't like that, but then that gave her the background for analytics. So, so given your ops research, uh, your um, your statistical stuff around wastage and, and flow, how many of those techniques did you bring to the table with the team in terms of using data to help them understand where their blockages were, or at the moment are you still kind of gut, like in, intuition-based? I think the thing was that uh, it was difficult to see from the to-do doing done, um, mm -hmm. who was who was doing analysis and who was doing development and, and how that was progressing. Uh, so we we had a go at uh, changing up the board. So it had uh, the SDRC along the top. So it had, you know, analysis, design, mm -hmm. build, test, deploy. And and then that gives a much better picture of, of if there's a whole lot of analysis going on um, and then not much development. Yeah. then, you know, you haven't got a balance. If I go back to what I found when I've done that at the beginning of going on the journey with the team is they become waterfall and pipeline based. So, you know, I'm going to do the requirements and then I've stopped and somebody will pick up the design. And even, you know, a lot of really good requirements people can actually do the design if they're given a pattern. Did you find that, that they started off with that, that's my, that's my bucket and uh, I'm not going to move across? Yeah, I mean, we did have developers who just did development, right. and uh, oh, actually, they did. No, that that's not true. They they did design development, and they well the ETL development, and they also did the report development. Okay. Yeah. So there was some so, form of T skills and yeah and yeah. yeah, and because of the way the project shaped up, we did a lot of the analysis up front. Right. Um, How much of that yeah. big guess up or well, little guess up front was right? Well, it was it was more the uh, the documentation of the uh, the information products. We right. had all those in, uh, done up front. Okay. Yeah. And so that gave you almost like a prioritisation process of what yeah. to do next, and yeah. some visual way of saying how far through the waterfall delivery promise, you know, for that project. Yeah. Well, we had priorities on what were the most important things were. So if we ran out of time, we would have said, okay, we'll just do these two because these yeah. are the, the most okay. important ones. Did you manage to get the information so. products down to a level where you could actually deliver an information product production ready in a week? We couldn't do it in a week. No, okay. All right. No, I'm just so I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I've got one team I'm working with at the moment where actually they're almost down to three weeks. Uh, I think this, and they're rocking it. They're, they're going from initial requirements to acquiring the data all the way through to a production-ready product um, almost in three weeks, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. Does that include doing the ETL? Yep. So that's 
wireframing, capturing the requirements up front, vision statement wireframing, uh, they're not using Beam, so they're doing some other way of capturing data requirements to defining the model, creating the ETL, creating the dashboard, peer review, documentation, but they've done far more documentation than I expected, and they've all nailed it just about in three weeks. Um, How so, big's the team? Uh, that's a squad of four. So Feels very similar. Uh, they're a very experienced team, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in their job, they just haven't done this agile thing. So they naturally wanted to, you know, pipeline big requirements up front. So getting to thin slice was the, was the challenge as always, right? How do you break that big information product down into smaller dashboards of maybe three metrics, not the 12, and then next time you add the next three? That, that was one of the mindset changes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. It's, it's interesting, the team that I'm working with now, uh, they do come from an agile background. Right. Uh, the thing is that they don't have the experience in their organisation to know the subject matter ah. and, and the processes that we do. So. And do they come from a scrum or a, so an iterative scrum type process? I think they they've come done from a mix. A, done yeah, mix? yeah. How, and how they found moving into a, a new way of working that's kind of been put in place before they started. How did you onboard them? They actually started before I came into the team. Ah, right, okay, okay, so it's the other way Yeah, so there was already a, a, a process in place, or that, that it was um, a Kanban doing to do, doing done. Right. And um, I've actually now changed that. Okay, good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've got a board that has the, um, the SDLC across the top, yeah, right. and, and I. I've done, done it this week and put up what they're working on and, and I can see that there's a massive lot of analysis that's going on and there's only a few bits of development. Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you about analysis because we found yeah. that that was a bottleneck when we used mm. Kanban. Yeah. Um, so we've moved to actually removing a lot of that from from the development uh. um, cycle and doing that up front. Have you found that as well? That well, what I've been thinking is that because we've got all this analysis, we're going to actually need some other people to come and help us with it. Uh, oh, you're making me nervous. No. So, <laughs> so I've, I've always had a problem doing analysis up front, right, because we do all this work up front without actually proving the value in that. And then as I think back, part of the problem was there was no way once we did the analysis that we had something that we could hand off to another person and they could actually use. Right, the documents that we did, or the, there was a lot of context in there that we never disclosed. Right, so the developer got it; they'd look at it, and not even understand what to build, or they'd build something that actually wasn't what we meant. Um, now, what seems to have happened is by adopting Beam and by adopting information products and vision statements and uh, those user stories and wireframing and which questions we're going to answer. You know, a bunch of detail that we put into some form of pattern, it kind of looks like now it becomes a document that can be adopted by the next person in the supply chain, and they have almost enough to do their job. Um, yeah, business rules, the ETL rules themselves is the one I've just been working on now, but it, 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 it's an anti-pattern for Agile, right, that we actually define something up front with one group of people and we hand it off to the next group of people and we're not all involved and so yeah I'm just uh, yeah is, I think that, this is something that I'm going to have to look at how we how we do this and yeah so your ideas on this would be welcome um, yeah because we've got we've got a, two teams now working side by side and so they're they're a bunch of BI analysts and and a bunch of developers and uh, 
And where the testers sit now, the testers. We haven't got any testers at the moment. But if you had them, they'd be a third squad, right? So we get into a mini waterfall of squad one requirements, squad two develops, squad three tests. And the problem I've always had with that is when we get to that third squad, right, where they're three iterations ahead, right? So in your case, they're three weeks behind, actually. So requirements teams now on product number three doing requirements, development teams now on product number two doing development, testing teams on product number one, when they find a problem, requirements team have to time slice back to what the hell did we do a couple of weeks ago, developers, and now what you're also doing is interrupting their their ability to b- develop or deliver the acceptance criteria for what they're working on. And yeah, so, so that, you've lost the flow, haven't you? you? You've it, lost it, some of the benefit of Agile. Yeah. There's no collaboration, there's no focus on doing that, there's no just doing the work at the right time. Um, and so I, so, you know, I started off mini waterfalling and I'm trying to do everything I can to move away from that. It would also make it hard on the developers to have to go back and fix something that stop what they're doing yeah. and, and um, you know, Scrum 3 and move back to yeah. Scrum 1. So while for me having SDLC on we'll the have board mm. has value because I want to see the flow, right? I want to yeah. know that actually where's the blockage, right? If we have work in progress, so work in progress on doing, right? So let's say we have a squad of four and we're in doing and you can only have four cards. That has value, right? But actually having a visual cue of how close to finishing, done, done, on that product are we, unless you can see the pattern, it's a little bit hard. So um, introducing that SDLC flow or that, that supply chain, I think I like to call it now, um, so you can visually see, actually, no, there's lots to do that are still kind of requirement-y, requirements full, there's nothing, or, you know, we're, we're bubbling. Um, can bring in some of your OR stuff around actually what do we need to tweak, where do we need to focus to improve that throughput. Um, but if we're mini waterfalling... Uh, yeah, so I what are you suggesting then, perhaps we take, um, get the developers to spend more time on analysis before they do any more development? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, and then get the developers or the BAs, skills, people to spend time around um, testing or documentation. So it's not easy. It's not easy mm-hmm. to take that entire thing and slam it into three weeks. But it looks like it's possible. But what we have to focus on is those thin slices, right? They're, they're not done, you know? How much, what's the least we can do to get that puppy through? And then I suppose what I'm describing it now is icing, right? What's, what's the minimum amount of icing that we can do for the first layer of icing? And then once that's on the cake, we put the next level of icing on and we just build up those icing layers. And we found it hard to, um, because we've also got functional teams, so we have team leads and um, an actual functional, you know, development team, data team, testing team, to get those individuals to um, start using some of their T-skills and go cross-functional was actually quite hard. So even though um, everyone has their T-skills, you know, to get them to move away from their function is quite a mission. But, but if we look, when you first started your journey, you didn't have that. No, right? that's right. We started off with a single squad of T-skills with no organisational hierarchy. Yeah. And then you move, your organisation moved to those functional hierarchies for pastoral care. But also to enable us to scale easier, to upscale. Yeah, has it worked? I'm really interested because it's an anti pattern. You've, it has. You've introduced an anti pattern. It has in terms of being able to scale up. You're effectively 
doing what Nikki's doing with her team, or being forced to do with her team at scale. Yeah. So what have you done about the mini waterfall, the handoff, the where we're at, the rework, the time slicing? How have you managed? It's a daily challenge. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. We haven't nailed it. So yeah, it's a, it's a case of working on uh, encouraging people to do more than just their core skill, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and, and often this is one of the challenging conversations which you know I have with teams all the time. Somebody will say, but that person is better at it than me. Mm. And I'm like, yes they are, but are they busy at the moment? Oh yes, they're working on that. Right, is that the highest value task in this and what we've promised right now? Yes, cool. Is there anything else you can do that has value that's on the board? No. Right, so you might not be the best, but you can do it. You might be slower, but you're still moving it. So we either waste the points. Yeah, I think getting that buy-in for people to actually pick something up and, and do something that they're maybe not as comfortable doing. It's really unnatural, right? Yeah. It, it becomes, yeah. it's an unlearn, relearn behaviour. Um, that actually, yeah, doing the thing that you're not the best at is well, still... Do you better. think that's where coaching comes in? Do you think yeah. that's where you need to have somebody sitting with them Scrum and, and helping them? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Or a technical person sitting with uh, them? Uh, no, it's a coach. Yeah. It, it's a, a coach. coaching behaviour. Yeah. So it might be the scrum master, it might be an agile coach, it might be uh, an experienced person in the squad that uh, has done it before and can help them. But it's a coaching, not a, not a um, talent. Yeah, so we want to get away from um, situations where somebody's sick and, oh no, we... We haven't got a developer today. We'll have to get another one, or we haven't got an analyst because they're they're on annual leave. We have to wait for them to come back. That yeah. sort of um, behaviour is it's really easy to get into, and we're trying to avoid that. And it's like the developer can pick up and do some analysis. Or what skills do we need to do to give the developer those skills over time? Right, because again, it's. Um, if the developer's happy to become a T-skilled individual, right, and that's actually one of the core conversations, we have to invest in that person gaining those skills. Um, so like one of the teams I'm working at, at the moment, you know, they, made a, they had to make a decision, they have a number of technology platforms, and they had to make a decision whether the squads were technology bound um, so, you know, we've got technology one, mm. is there a squad that are good at that? And we've got technology two, and that's and both of those technologies are going to stay around, right? We're not going to lose them. Uh, and we've got the new technology, right? The new cool, new cool shit. Um, so is there a squad that just does new cool shit? And uh, in my experience, actually, did it with you guys to begin with, was when we ended up with the cool shit team and the boring BAU team, it was really sad on the boring BAU team, right? Because they weren't getting new skills, they weren't learning new things, they were just doing the dross. Uh, and a second behaviour happened which was really bad was the new cool shit team uh, actually knew that if they didn't quite get done it would go over the fence to the BAU team and, and they'd wear it right and healthy competition yeah but the BAU team really couldn't pass it back to them and say that's not done right that's not done done so yeah you kind of could get away with not quite being done done um, and so I didn't like that, but yeah, that behaviour I didn't think that was didn't something. work. And we also toyed around with having um, cool new shit team and a team that was solely um, enhancing existing products. So they will possibly take something that the cool shit team has done and add some functionality to that. But um, then you get into um, why did you do that? You should have done that. So we found that didn't. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So, so right now my focus for teams is uh, you own it, right? If we want true automation, if we want things to uh, not cost us time later, or if they are, we're identifying as technical debt truly, then actually the team that build it should maintain it because you're going to keep your room tidy if it has an impact on you. I think also with product ownership as well. So um, there's a concept in our organisation that there'll be a product owner that will be in for the journey of building something and then it will go across to a team that look at existing products and work on the life cycle of those products. Um, so I'm sort of humming about that because where is the love transferred? <laughs> Where's the trade-off, right? The yeah. pro- core build product owner gets to trade, make decisions that cost catch the catch the shit product owners, yeah. right? Um, so I suppose if you're identifying that as technical debt, like true debt with a cost, and the money to pay that cost later goes to the, the catch-it team, then that might work. Mm. But if you don't, so again, a lot of it comes back to business agility for the organisation. If your organisation behaves in a way that an agile team will create something and then hand it off to another team to operate it, that's okay, right? That, that, that's, that's still better than doing waterfall. But there's a consequence coming of that behaviour. Um, so same with the developer, right? If, if, so if we go back to, you know, if we say team one's on this technology and team two's on this technology, then if you're on team two, you're never going to learn the new technology. So yeah, this team I'm working with, they need to learn Python. One knows it, one doesn't. There's a natural learning curve for them. We've got that problem because we've got two technologies, even with our small team, we've got two <laughs> technologies. Yeah. And so we've got specialists within the team. Uh, and, yeah, so we're, yeah. Like, you know, try, we, we're, trying to do some crossover but that's more difficult isn't it um, so peer programming is a way of doing crossover okay. now that's that's interesting so um, when I start with a team and go let's peer program and they go what's that it's where two of you are staring at the same screen they naturally go oh my god that's that's going to um, we're going to get half as much done you know it's not going to be as efficient but what I find is when they try it actually they realize it's far more efficient because um, they don't go down rabbit holes, right? As you, as an individual, you tend to go down a rabbit hole of something, and, and when you're peer programming, your peer's going to go, uh-uh, why, That's not gonna work. Why, why are we doing that, right? It's not important right now, uh, let's just carry on. Second one is sometimes you'll strike a problem that they've seen before and they know some ideas, so they'll jump in and go, oh, yeah. Um, they're effectively, as they watch the first person working, they're effectively testing and peer reviewing as you go. So you tend to get better quality code. Um, and peer programming, that I think, comes out of a lot of the XP practice. So it's been around for 20 or 30 years. So um, I find that, actually, if you want to upskill and cross-skill, then peer programming um, is a great way of starting, but it's always a long, arduous conversation to get there. So does that work when you get a tester and a developer peer programming? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd say if you've got testers that have strong T skills... Um, and developers that have strong development skills and you haven't blended those skills mm. yet, then get your testers and your developers they to, to try and say, you have to be staring at the same screen when any code's written. That's interesting because we um, have probably a waterfall approach of getting some requirements from the BA and they go to the tester and they go to the developer and they have their own way of building that into code <laughs> and then... <laughs> yeah, so so I've struggled with that one for many years because I couldn't find a better pattern, right? Um, so I looked at that and went, 
I hate that because, you know, again, we, we learned it when we did that work together. Yeah. Um, so I didn't like the fact that actually we have two lots of people writing code that does the same thing, one to develop the ETL and one to write the code again to test whether it was right. Yeah. Um, I didn't like the fact that they both work off a requirements document, but as the development team became more agile, there was that continuous loop of feedback of, or oh, actually that requirement doesn't make sense. And so they would iteratively work through with the product owner and, and that, um, and those trade-off decisions and refine that, but it never went back into the document, the te tester never got it. So their code was based on what it looked like two weeks ago when they ran, there was a natural problem. Um, oh, well. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah, happened that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, we'd run it overnight and then we'd find there's a problem and now somebody had to deep dive, well, was it the ETL code that was wrong, the testing code, or a divergence, and that took a whole other time. Um, so I didn't like that, but I didn't have an alternate pattern, right? Like, what's actually better? Um, so that's why working down this idea of using um, a rules-based approach of testing using Gherkin uh, has solved that problem, right? Because we're writing a rule, and now what we're doing is validating the rule, validating the code against the rule, um, validating the exceptions, not rewriting the code, and I found that that's a much better pattern, but it's a whole new set of patterns, a whole new set of skills. Um, and one of the problems is there's still not a lot of software in the data and analytics space that does that for you. Right? It's to automate it. Yeah, it's not out of the box, so we end up having to write it ourselves, and we know that writing our own software as part of the way we work not is expensive and hard, And but there's not an alternative. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know, how, how are you, I mean... Did you have with your testers the, what I call the Excel approach? So um, the developers are writing against the requirements, the testers are having an Excel spreadsheet of all the tests they need to run and the code, developers hand it off, the testers have a great time running through their checklist manually, well, running the code, going back and highlighting all the mistakes and we go back into that loop. But next time we do it, the testers still run through that manual semi-manual testing process, so testing, retesting still is another week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had that going on, yeah. exactly what you described, yeah, where you've got the testers come out with their own code and the ETL yeah. developers doing their own code and yeah, yeah and, and the requirements changing, It was that's exactly yeah. what was going on. Yeah. But the alternative yeah. is we don't have any testers better than the team, mm. then we, we do what we call happy pass testing, right? The developer writes some code, runs it, and uh, they're happy that they've met the requirements, but they don't really have the T-skills yet to go, well, what's the unhappy path? What are the, that's what testers are good at, right? Mm -hmm. Looking and going, well, what happens if this happens to the data, right? And so I think that blending of, of those T-skills together is really important, mm. but it's hard. So yeah, if you can go back, Nikki, and sort it out, and then yeah, come back sure. to the next come podcast yeah. with the, uh, the blog, the pattern, <laughs> a bit of documentation for us so we can adopt it, that, uh, that'll be great. Um, so naturally when you do a Kanban flow, um, you don't typically have this concept of an iteration, right? The idea is actually stuff just comes into the backlog naturally, um, whoever's in charge of it, when they see a slot next, they move it across so it can be picked up by the team, the team focus on flushing it all the way through so they can carry on, we focus on uh, the speed it moves through those stages and in any um, work in progress constraints that we're putting in place to improve that. What you've done, it sounds like, is kind of, I'm not sure if it's called Scrum Barn or Khan Scrum. <laughs> Scrum uh, Barn, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
where it's a flow-based model to a degree, but you again, you're still naturally putting a uh, constraint of some planning and some some proof, you know, or focus on what happens each week, um, which I do a lot, you know, and we work with teams actually do a lot. Yeah, um, I, I find it really helps to focus and make sure people are working on the right things, because it's easier for people to just say, ah, oh, that one... I'm not really sure what I should be doing on that one. Um, so, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really comfortable with this, so they just pick up the thing they're really comfortable with. But actually yeah. they need to get on and do that one that's hard yep. um, to get through it. Yeah, we take the one that we enjoy or we know is easy to get that success and we leave the blocker sitting there because it's sitting there as a blocker because it's hard. But you can see that story sitting there and gathering dust on the board. Yeah. Do you have morning stand-ups where you... Um, yeah, we do have that as well. Yeah, we have stand ups. We've got um, we have a stand up with with the analysts as well, uh, and we've got people uh, off site, so we've got people are remote. Ooh. So that's pretty good. <laughs> number yeah. one on my checklist. Uh, Semi remote yeah. team, just yeah. to yeah. add that to the mix. Yeah. yeah, so we have Skype. We have Skype meeting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so that's so we look at we've got we're using Jira. Yep. And so we have we have that, and so I've just introduced the manual board. Um, so I'm kind of figuring out how I'm going to keep that aligned. It's hard. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, I can t- yeah. talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So Jira, for the um, for those that are remote, especially, I guess. Yeah. Um, do you do you have um, the ritual where the person that finishes the card gets to move it to done? Yeah. I, f- I found that's quite quite an achievement to to actually. And as a scrum master, I find it really hard not to move it myself. <laughs> but yeah, the one that I find it hard is, is uh, saying to the team, you can't move it to done done, that's the product owner's rule. Yeah. Um, and actually it was interesting with the, the team at the moment is the, um, the done um, column was getting flooded um, over time and it wasn't getting moved to done done. So again, it was that conversation with the product owner, actually, you know, you need to do, you, you need to every day come and clear it to done done for them because it helps them enjoy that success right yeah um, and yes I know it's hard but let's just find that time and if you're not sure um, how you know it's done done you know because we're still learning with this team through acceptance criteria it's fine let's just have a quick chat to the team and, and you can make a gut feel that you're happy or you're not but you need to give them feedback um, whereas one of the other teams I'm working on with um, they've got very good at acceptance criteria and so it's quite a robust discussion when the product owner goes, no, nah, it's not done, done, and the team's going, ah, oh, hold on, let's look at the acceptance criteria, bang, 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 you know, we've done what we agreed, and I'm like, yeah, okay, but I need this, well, that's cool, we're just going to make a new card, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's okay, change is okay, you know, new things are okay, but it's, it's not slipped in there, right, we, <laughs> we didn't commit to that for that series of effort, um, so that was kind of, kind of exciting. I think with the physical board, the, um, the, the actual, the, the visibility of that card that's holding things up is something you just don't get in Jira. Mm-hmm. And um, and we find that if it's sticking there, and it's, if it's a different type of card than the new ones around it that are moving, I've found that as well, um, then we might have a ceremony or a planning session where we say, why is this not moving that needs breaking up? Do you, do you have that sort of thing as well? Oh, yeah. we haven't done that yet. It's, it's a pretty new team, so we're, you know, we're still finding our feet, really. Yeah. I think one of the things I really like is, uh, especially with the paper boards, because I, I still think that electronic boards, for some reason, stop our conversations a bit. But when we have partially remote teams, it's a nightmare. 
But one of the things is pattern recognition. So um, with the with one of the teams I'm working at the moment, the the core, the new things they're building are kind of yellow stickies, and the BAU stuff is a different colour sticky. Mm. Um, so you get a visual. It's quite interesting a visual pattern of how much BAU versus um, information product development is happening. Um, I'm just wondering with your your flow board, maybe have kind of a visual pattern that um, as you see uh, a, a task or a card kind of um, getting stuck, find some way of visually moving it to the top of the board. So almost, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd create swim lanes because I'm not sure I'm comfortable putting it in as a solid line, but start visually moving that card to the top and leaving the other ones to the bottom, and then the conversation is, look, this task has been sitting there, it's kind of rising to the top of the glass as been sitting there for too long. Now we've got to define what too long means, but do it gut feel to begin with, and see if that visual cue of, okay, that one just needs to be done now, uh, actually starts helping the behaviour, and then if it doesn't, maybe start reinforcing it with data to say, well... You know, this one's been sitting there for five days. Maybe we should introduce a data-driven rule, which is, you know, a task can't sit there for more than three days unless it's blocked, right? If it's blocked, then it should have something on it. Thing. Um, that's the other one we did was um, we introduced block icons. So, uh, didn't again, you forget what works. Um, so we have a magnet, and uh, if you're blocked on a task, you whack it on there because then you're allowed another task because it's blocked. Right, um, so yeah, we kind of walked in and there were like four cards there for a person. It was like what, but two of them because they were remote hadn't been moved for them. One of them was blocked, and so they introduced the next next valuable piece of work to be done. Yeah, we've um, used that as well. And yeah, that so that blocker, well. and, yeah. Then, and then what happens then, is everybody comes in and scans the blockers, yeah. right? Yeah, they oh that's blocked. What do we yeah. do to yeah? But without that visual cue, the card kind of languished. Yeah, we, when we were doing that, it was it was uh, sometimes. Uh, you had to make sure someone was actually following up on that block because that block yeah. could just sit there for ages and um, then you don't know what's yeah. happening. Like, why is it blocked? Yeah, yeah we had a similar um, situation where we were waiting on decisions to be made by the product owner. So we'd give it a nice yellow sort of highlighted um, sticker on there just to show what we're waiting on. Yeah, I struggle with that one and that what do we do with a card that's waiting for somebody else? Yeah, right. not done to done done, but do we move it back to to do, or do we move it to another place on the board where yeah. it's highlighted that actually it's it's not blocked, but we're waiting. Mm. Um, you know, do we have another another column which is waiting, yep. and then we move it in and out? Right? We have so, another icon for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So but we, I think we need some visual glue, which is the team have done everything they can, they're now dependent on something else. Yeah, and we've brought stories into our scrum backlog that they've got past our sort of um, test of is it actually us that's going to be doing this Mm. and it's not until we um, see that card lingering around that we realise that well it's not actually us that are doing it so we can park it somewhere and as you say there might be another place on the board where you put external things that you're waiting on decisions that sort of thing so it's kind of blocked but it's kind of not but then if we go back to the definition of blocked, the team has got as far as they can, they're reliant on something happening for them to finish. Yep. So really that, that waiting on somebody else is a form of blockage, right? Yeah, and it's also an impediment that Scrum Master is probably responsible for yeah. busting, right. busting down. So I think I'll go back to answer my question, which is you put the block oh. magnet on it and say, 
I'm blocked, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not blocked because of a technology problem or access to the data or I'm blocked because somebody else needs to do something for me to finish yeah. that off. We end up having a list of uh, what the blocks are on the side of the board. Uh. And, and yeah, so they were all listed out because there were some things that were blocking that were taking a long time to solve. Right. Yeah. Is that because you're reliant on another team for yeah. platform and environment yeah. and those kind of things? Yeah. 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 We almost had a, um, a decision register <laughs> that I quickly discounted because it sounds waterfall. Decision register, risk register. Um, so we, we compromised with the, um, the yellow stickies. Phew. Okay. Close. Yeah. What were the yellow stickies? Uh, these things are waiting on a decision by the business. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. I use. I actually do use decision registers, but I use them slightly differently. Okay. So for me, um, we we keep a very small form piece of documentation of the context of why a decision was made. Right. Um, so, you know, if we're going to do something and there were a number of choices. Uh, often I find it's important for the team to document the choice they made and sure. the context in which they made it, especially around technical debt, right, when we're cheating, when we go, uh, look, we, we know we should do that, but actually for these reasons we're not going to, um, and then we just get to fill out a really small piece of text that gives context on that decision, but yeah, yeah. so the next person or next team or the next time you come back in a couple of weeks with your, your testing team of why did you do that, yeah, you can actually go back and see the context. Um, but maybe, maybe I should change that to context register or, or you know context rules or something like that. Not context rules, context register of you know what was the context of that at the time. Excellent. All right. Well, it looks like we've got to the end of that one. Anything else you kind of? So yeah, look. I I think uh, in summary, um, I tend to go to uh, to do, uh, or you know, to do doing done 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 because it, it helps move away from a traditional way of working with a data and analytics team. Um, but ideally moving back to that, that flow based of, you know, the, the steps in the supply chain for getting data from one place into some form of visualization or data service when, when everything else is sorted. Um, but that's really only because it's kind of worked for me over the last few years. Um, so it's good to see that you're kind of ripping straight into that and then just focus on the things that are important, right? The things that the team need to improve on to be, get better at what they do. So T skills, how do we hand off without without having loss of that insight or context? Uh, how do we not have to time slice back two to three weeks and what we're working on then, how the testers become a core cool part of the team? But we all know that yeah, that's that's the perfect way of doing it. But we always start slowly and, and move towards it. And I just love the fact that um, the physical um, board is not not dead. You know, standing around as a team, it's in the morning looking at the board, moving cards is um, something that you just can't replicate in Jira. Yeah. So I tip my hat to that. I agree. But as soon as you get one remote member, it becomes a nightmare. Um, there's a, actually a book just come out that I haven't bought yet called, uh, so you find it, um, Working in an Agile Way with Distributed Teams. So uh, an Agile coach who's done nothing but work with distributed teams for a long time. So uh, him and somebody else have written a, a book on that, I heard on a podcast. So 
got to get around to buying and reading that because I'm really, really interested because uh, a lot of the teams I work with now are at least one member's distributed. Mm. It never used to be the norm, but it seems to be. Yeah, with Skype, it really, really helps because we're on the phone a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that yeah, we're starting to get some tools that help us, but I, like you, I still love the physical board. Yeah. Um, yeah, until we get virtual reality, matrixy, uh, uh, swipey, swipey. We're all, for the people that can't see us, which is everybody, we're all doing the, the matrix swipe. Uh, or the minority, minority report. report. That's the one I was thinking yeah. of. Uh, that'd be cool. All right, well, I, I think we'll wrap that one up. Uh, thank you very much for your time, and we'll catch you all later. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to another podcast from Blair and Shane, where we discuss all things Agile BI. For more podcasts and resources, please go to agilebi.guru.